Welcome to For the Health of It, starring Dr. Jenny Brooke, vitality expert and wellness chiropractor at Spinal Corrective Center in Amherst, New Hampshire. She is joined by producer Mike Clark. This dynamic, sometimes crazy, sometimes funny, and always entertaining duo will inspire you to eat, move, sleep, think, and live better. You're listening to Raw Talk about full potential living for the health of it. Welcome back. I'm in the studio with Mike, as usual, our producer, and I have with us Dr. Daniel Eldridge. Welcome, Dr. Daniel. He's an associate at SCC, and he's been helping a lot of patients for about two years almost, right? Yeah, it's coming on two years now. Coming on two years. So a lot of people have seen Dr. Daniel in the office, and I thought it was about time we had him him on on the the show. show. Yeah, Yeah, it's exciting. It's good. Um, If you remember, listeners, we've done shows in the past called In the News, so we are doing it's my favorite thing. And Mike loves it. I do. And our focus is, you know, the show is raw talk about full potential living. So we focus mostly on health topics. And, you know, basically what I do is I see an article in the news or I hear hear something on the radio and I, I print it out and I save it for the show. And we just share our thoughts about what we're reading, what we're hearing, what research has come out or what ideas are out there about health and creating a life of full potential. So on well, that, always some interesting uh, things going on. And too. we're going to start with a doozy. So, Here we go. A doozy. You know, a doozy. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of people, especially who study natural health, have heard of Dr. Joseph Mercola. And sometimes he does what's called an analysis, basically where he just puts together some research that he's read and kind of analyzes what's happening and presents it so people can start to, to do their own research and understand it. So this was on Mercola.com. The title is... Scientists want to create tasty food from plastic. Oh, great. Now we're going to eat plastic? (laughs) Yep. So we throw away the food and eat the container. Actually, one thing you're going to learn through this article is that we have all been eating plastic. You're probably right. I'm not surprised. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Okay, so... Here's some highlights of the story. So this this organization is called DARPA. It stands for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. They um, started a project to create a food system using military plastic and paper waste to improve military logistics. So this is about food for people in the military. But, you know, he makes the point that it's it's a small step to go from there to how do, how do we feed the world, right? And he makes the point that the world has a plastic pollution problem, which we know. Yeah. But listen to this. It says only 9% of the plastic created since 1950 has been recycled. Wait, really? Yeah. So it's just like in the ground? Yeah. 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 Or in the ocean. There's a lot in the ocean, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I could see why they'd be like, well, what can we do with this? Let's make food out of it. (laughs) Right. Okay. So the article says, we have a problem with plastic. Not only is it difficult to get rid of without damaging the environment, but we appear to have an addiction to all things disposable. In the U.S., plastic is considered an integral and necessary part of daily life. Just a stroll down the grocery store aisle reveals an unhealthy dependence on plastic from packaging to bags for our groceries. Which is true. Like, if you've ever tried to, like, not use plastic, like... Yeah. It's everywhere. It's I everywhere. I wouldn't know how to do that. Yeah, yeah. You, you go to buy a cucumber and it's wrapped in plastic. Yeah, true. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. It's, it's everywhere. So he makes that point. He says, fresh produce is often wrapped in plastic or sliced and shrink-wrapped in a plastic covering. Nuts, cheese, milk, and lettuce are all encased in plastic. Across the world, 299 million tons were produced in 2013, much of which ended up in the oceans, like you said, Mike, right. threatening wildlife and environment. In 2015, the U.S. generated 34 
34.4 million tons, which accounted for 13.2% of municipal solid waste. Wow. See, a lot of that packaging I find really unnecessary, though. Like you buy something. No, what really bugs me is those hard plastic. You can't open them. You know, like you buy an electronic device or something. Well, even like chicken, you get that now. It's like shrink wrapped in the plastic and you need like a scissors to open it. Yeah, you need a chainsaw. Are you kidding me? But even it's like crazy. bags of potato chips, there's hardly any chips in there. It's mostly air. So it's all of excess plastic. All the plastic. Right, exactly. The proportion so. of plastic to food is, mm-hmm. is yeah. really high. So maybe if they address that, we won't have to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, eat the package along with the food. Okay, so this DARPA group, so how this happened is they were awarded the Iowa State University Award um, in Partners. It says a $2.7 million grant to make food from plastic and paper waste, which they intend to feed to military men and women. So first of all, I just have to let you know this. You might not know this. I went to the University of Iowa, right? Okay, I was an Iowa Hawkeye cheerleader. Our arch nemesis was Iowa State University. So already I'm a little bit like, mm, I don't know about this. I'm surprised <laughs> you used the article. I, I It kind of like got me going. <laughs> it's been a long time, but you know, so all those U of I fans, woo, go Hawkeyes. Okay, so... <laughs> They said the ability to turn paper and plastic into a food product may help with short-term nourishment for soldiers and improve military logistics for extended missions. So here's where it gets the details. The aim is to convert paper waste into sugars and plastic into fatty acids and fatty alcohols. So these byproducts would then be processed into a single-celled biomass in the field. So examples of a single-cell biomass is Vegemite and nutritional yeast. Yeah, which I heard is wonderful. Actually, I have like. You have, have you I, had Vegemite? I have not had Vegemite, but I put nutritional yeast on my popcorn. It's super good. It tastes yeah. like cheese. I do use nutritional yeast, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're initiating, obviously, for the military, um, but it may. It says here it may not be long before such a system would be proposed as a means of providing inexpensive foodstuffs for others. So University of Iowa says it could go a long way towards solving looming problems of plastic disposal and ensuring a viable global food chain. That's all well and good, but what's our bodies going to do? Yeah, like, is the food going to be healthy for yeah, you? Yeah, right, exactly. Is there nutrient density, right? right. So that's the question. So this, whole, this article goes on to actually discuss that, and they do make the point that artificial food is not as nutrient-dense. No, of course. But then, even more interesting, they go into this whole um, thing about is recycling just a fraud? And this interests hmm. me because I pay for recycling and I've had people say, and I won't name a company, but they say, oh, I heard that they say it's recycling, but they really just put it in with all the other too. stuff. Yeah. So nobody really knows, right? So this is what executive director of the Basil Action Network, Jim Puckett, told Rolling Stone magazine. He said they really sold people on the idea that plastics can be recycled because there's a fraction of them that are. It's fraudulent. When you drill down into plastics recycling, you realize it's a myth. And that's hmm. where the whole only 9%. It's a myth in the fact that it's not getting recycled or it's not possible to recycle them. Well, he said like unlike aluminum, which can be recycled again and again, plastic degrades in reprocessing. It's almost never recycled more than once. So a plastic soda bottle, for example, might get downcycled into a carpet. But there's very few things they can actually I, really use. I bought some swim shorts this year. They were made out of recycled plastic. It's a really? company called Fair Harbor. They were awesome, See, too. now that's what we should support. Right. 
but I wonder like what percentage of them is actually plastics. You know? uh, yeah, I didn't look at that, the label, but you know, that's their thing. It's a, a California company called Fair Harbor and they're really nice shorts and they're made out of plastic, supposedly. That's what they do. Yeah. So. It says at the rate at which plastic is being added to the ocean, it's expected there will be more plastics than fish by 2050. That's mm. insane. Wow. There's a lot of There's fish. There's a lot of fish. <laughs> okay. So remember I said about like, we all eat plastics. So you want to hear about it? So the article says tiny bits of plastic can be found nearly everywhere in the environment, including the food on your plate. Microplastics, as they are called, are smaller than five millimeters, which, by the way, that's not that small. Five millimeters is like about half an inch. You can definitely see that. Yeah. They've been found in foods and beverages. Drinking water is one of the largest sources from which researchers estimate the average person consumes 1,769 particles of plastic each week. Because of the plastic bottles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're talking actual particles. I'm sure they're not all five millimeters, no. but they're smaller. But yeah, it says additionally, individuals who meet their recommended water intake through only bottled sources may be ingesting an additional 90,000 microplastics annually. Wow. Is that going to clog up the plumbing? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So, so here it breaks it down. The average person... Every week has five grams or enough plastic to pack a soup spoon. Every year, 250 grams or a heaping dinner plate of shredded plastic is what we've accumulated in our ingestion. And over 79 years or a lifetime, 44 pounds of shredded plastic that we've consumed. Fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. I yeah. knew we ate bugs, but I didn't know about the plastic. Yeah, and then it goes on to talk about how, you know, it has the potential to cause toxicity. Yeah. So then how do you get from that to making it right. edible? <laughs> right. I don't know. Now I'm really know. confused. I don't know. And I was know. pretty confused before. <laughs> so, of course, the article doesn't go into, you know, this is why it would be good if we ate plastic. I think it's more if we can make it something we can ingest. We're already mm-hmm. ingesting it anyway. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Interesting. So just to end on a positive note, um, there is, you know, about a dozen examples of how you can reduce your impact on using plastic in the world. So, for example, don't use plastic bags. We know that. Uh, right. For use reusable bags, especially when you're getting groceries. Um, don't use a a straw, which a lot of companies now are, are going strawless with their li- way the lids are shaped. Yep. Um, or bring your own mug for a coffee drink. Um, instead of buying bottled water, bring water from home in a glass water bottle, right? Store foods in glass containers or mason jars. This was interesting. Bring your own leftovers container when eating out. Interesting. I never would have thought of that. It's a little awkward. It's a little weird. <laughs> you, you hand them yeah. like your, yeah. your little jar from home, but... There we go. I guess if you eat out a lot and mm-hmm. you, you tend to take home food a lot, avoid processed foods, which we know because they're typically sold with plastic wrapping. Request no plastic wrap on your newspaper and dry cleaning. It's kind of interesting. Um, use cloth diapers, cloth rags. Use old shirts and socks. Make for cleaning rags. Right. Avoid disposable utensils and straws and buy foods in bulk. Um, buy clothes and other items at secondhand stores. It said microfibers found in newer clothing can be as destructive as plastic grocery bags. Hmm. Interesting. And buy infant toys and even pet toys made of wood or untreated fabric, not plastic. Which I was committed to that when my kids were young. They only had, they had non-plastic toys. It's good. I think a lot of people think about like plastic and it's just overwhelming because it's so pervasive. It's yeah, yeah. To think of not using plastic feels almost impossible. So interesting. You yeah. ready for the next one? Sure. Okay. No, so I'm hungry. Th- <laughs> <laughs> I wish there was like an article that said which foods tend to have the most plastics in them. Yeah. That'd be very interesting. Yeah. Now I'm going to feel like every time I eat something, am I eating plastic? <laughs> 
Okay, so this is from um, a website called SciTech Daily, like science technology, SciTech Daily. And it was just published this week. And the title is ADHD, bipolar and aggressive behavior may be driven by high fructose intake. Huh. So I mean, we kind of know this, right? Give yeah. your kids sugar, they're going to yeah. act like yep. they're maniacs. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. off the wall. Yep. Um, but it's kind of interesting, the, the science behind what they're saying here. It's a little more in depth than I've read before. So it says, new peer review paper looks at evolution in current Western diet to help explain manic behaviors. So new research suggests that conditions such as attention deficit hyperactivity syndrome, which is ADHD, bipolar disorder, and even aggressive behaviors may be linked with sugar intake and that it may have an evolutionary basis. So this came out of the University of Colorado on Schutz Medical Campus, and it was published in Evolution and Human Behavior. So it prevents a hypothesis supporting a role for fructose, a component of sugar and high fructose corn syrup, and uric acid, which is a fructose metabolite, in increasing the risk of these behavioral disorders. So it says, we present evidence that fructose, by lowering energy in cells, triggers a foraging response similar to what occurs in starvation. Hmm. So, yeah. So when we say foraging, we mean like literally like aggressiveness to aid the securing of food as a survival response. Interesting. Yeah. So basically you eat sugar and you become impulsive and they call it novelty seeking and rapid decision making and aggressiveness because your body all of a sudden and this is the way I look at it, is looking for nutrients mm-hmm. and it thinks it's in survival mode. So it's it's manic to try to secure this food for a survival response. So it's overactivation of this process in your body that comes from excess sugar intake. So it literally creates an impulsive behavior. And that whole range, which is the ADHD, bipolar, even aggression is on there. Well, we know sugar's a no-no anyway. I mean... Yeah, and it literally like... It's your every, your, your body too. is oh, yeah. like, it, it takes it in and it's like, I, I, where am I going to get yeah. food? I got to go hunting now. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, think about fructose intake. That's skyrocketed yeah, the last course. century. Yeah. I mean, like we, it says here, we may be in overdrive to the high amounts of sugar that are in our current Western diet. So I was on Facebook recently and I saw a post comparing foods in America with the exact same brand of food in Europe and the ingredient list. And the ones in America had high fructose corn syrup. The ones in European countries did not. And so there's this thing how like some of Americans' food is, is banned in Europe. And that's why we're all crazy. Oh. <laughs> when, when my daughter was young, when we would go to the grocery store. She'd say, can I go over? It was like aisle seven. Can I go to aisle seven? Because she knew in aisle seven was the um, foods from around the world. Yeah. And they had Kit Kats. And it, the sticker on it suggested it came from like the UK mm-hmm. and it didn't have high fructose corn syrup. So once really? in a while I would let her get like the the junk food or like the Kit Kats from that aisle because it was different ingredients than the American Kit Kats. It's not surprising. Isn't that funny? So they make a note here. We don't blame aggressive behavior on sugar, but rather note that it may be one contributor. But I, you see this in people. Like, I think we've always kind of known this, at mm-hmm. least with, sure. with that like hyperactivity. Yep. I find it interesting that they link it as well to bipolar disorder. But sugar will change your personality mm-hmm. temporarily. No doubt. So it's good to know that, yeah. you know, pay attention to it. Yeah. Speaking of personality, the next one was actually U.S. News and World Report. It was at US, usnews.com, and the title is Tough Guy Mentality Keeps Athletes in Denial About Pain. 
Oh, that's so true. Exactly. Sometimes there's these articles that are like research. You're like, um, did we really need to spend money on a research to, to do yeah. this? Yeah, we knew yeah. this. <laughs> we especially know this in the office. Yeah, you guys I'm, must know that oh, yeah. pretty well. Constantly. Yeah, they're in denial about their pain. Yes. So they're talking about a culture of toughness and resilience is encouraged among elite college rowers, but it can keep them from reporting injuries and new study finds. So it actually talks about this culture in this elite athletic environment that you're not supposed to talk about your pain. And what's interesting is it goes on to talk specifically about lower back pain, because I guess it's common in rowers, which totally makes makes sense. sense. But admitting it is a sign of weakness and failure in their culture. So it says Irish and Australian rowers in this study felt compromised by lower back pain, which is common in the sport, the study author said, but many felt that the sporting culture didn't allow them to be open and honest about their pain for fear of exclusion, which I could see that be like, you're part of, of course. yeah, you, you hurt today. Okay. You're, you're off the boat. Right, you're yep. you're <laughs> off the right? team. Right. But we see this in our practice too. Mm-hmm. And they're not elite athletes. No. You see it in high school football players. You oh yeah. yeah. They, you know, they don't want to sit on the bench. So right. they're out there like injured playing but it's even just with people who have a physical job around other people working with them they're not on a sports team but you know they don't want to complain about how they're sore or in pain with their coworkers. yeah because it's weak and Mm -hmm. it's failure yeah so unfortunately we see those people and they finally complain to us because that's what they're paying us right yeah To, to complain and and i i have been in i mean every day we're in this situation where we're saying okay well then how can we modify what you're doing? And they're like, no, 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 I can't stop, you know, yeah. going, doing that. And I can't stop playing golf or I can't stop working. And you're like, well, what? You have to, something has to give. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I can't take full responsibility for their pain. You can only recommend. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's interesting. Um, I think on the flip side of that, I now, do. Is, is that strictly a male thing, you think? Or? Not, no. 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 I was just curious. No. Might be more percentage that way, but I don't think mm-hmm. it's... There's some tough women out there, oh, though. Oh, for sure. Ooh. You're one, Jenny. Yeah, but if I was in pain, I'd be like, I'm going to stay home today. Oh, me too. I'd be on disability for like two years. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And I don't really have a physical job. But, but this article was in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Like, like clearly, it's something. Yeah, of course. So I think there's, um, I think there's a culture where and I've said this to Dr. Daniel before at the office, I feel like one of my main roles with people is to give them permission to stop. Yeah. I actually have a notepad that looks just like a prescription pad. So we don't prescribe medication. So I I don't really use a prescription pad. But what I'll do is I'll write on there the date and I'll say, um, Mike, must rest today yes. and not do any house chores or lifting or you know what I mean? Thank you. So it's like Can I show that note to my wife. <laughs> exactly. I mostly <laughs> give it to people to show to their family members right. or they just need to see it for themselves. Yeah. Like Look at Jenny gave me a hall pass. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And somehow it gives people permission to slow down. Sure. I mean it's crazy how people won't do it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that people tend to not do is drink water. So it brings us to the next article. Ooh, nice segues today. Thank you. I thought that was pretty uh, good. You're on a roll. <laughs> this was a UK um, journal. It's called Independent, independent.co.uk. And it's what's interesting about it is it's, it's not like something we don't know. The article is called How Long Can a Person Live Without Water? And the subtitle is Unlike Food, the Maximum Time an Individual Can Go Without Water Seems to Be a Week. And I'm like, okay, so again, we kind of know this, like we've been studying this. So what's, what's your whole point here? And it's, it's an interesting article because it talks about, you know, we can go more than three weeks without food 
on average, but water's different. And we can go up to a week, sometimes only three to four days. It depends how hot we are, how much we're sweating, right. what environment we're in. But what I like about the article is it reminds us that 60% at least of our of the adult body is made out of water. And every living cell in the body needs water to function. And that water acts as a lubricant for our joints. And it says it also regulates our body temperature through sweating and respiration. It helps to flush waste. So it's kind of important. Yeah. So when yeah. we, just we a bit, yeah. Just so a tad. when I adjust people and Dr. Neal, I know we've had this conversation, you can feel the difference in people's joints when they're dehydrated. Really? It's like the, yes. It's huh. like they're more, I use the word, the tissue is congested or it feels mucky. Um, that's my my technical word, mucky. Um, it's not crisp in there. Like the joint play is is more congested. Huh, that's interesting. And when someone's hydrated, it's different. Yeah. And so adjusting somebody who's dehydrated actually is harder. It's yeah. different. It's like the joint's not lubricated is how, exactly how it feels. Do you write them a note for that? Too? I do, actually. <laughs> or I literally hand them some water and yeah, say, you yeah. have to drink this before you get home. There you go. Yeah. So I, I think the important of understanding that it's not just about general energy and health dehydration will lead to pain because the joints aren't moving as well. They're not lubricated. But the other interesting thing about dehydration, especially in the winter is dehydration will lead to drying. So we know that, right? So if dry skin, flaking skin, right. um, but also dry mucous membranes. So dry eyes and specifically dry mouth and dry nose. So you might kind of remember in the winter that sometimes the inside of your nose just feels dry. It even feels a little cracked or mm -hmm. even gets a little crusty. When that happens, we have opened fissures basically that allow particles, virus, bacteria, environmental allergies to get into the body. Because the whole po point of the mucous membrane, like the the mouth that has a you know lubrication, the nose that has yeah, it's just a protective it's thing, a protective right? barrier, yeah. Yeah. and we lose that protective barrier. So that is a big reason why people tend to get sick in the winter. So one of the best ways to not get sick is to stay hydrated. So right. if you feel your skin, your mouth, or your nose is dry, it's another sign that you need to hydrate. I wonder what the percentage of people walking around dehydrated. I mean, high. there's probably high. a lot, right? We yeah. see it. Do you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's high. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting, it's not, the article says, it's not enough to just drink one glass of water a day. It's not like you wait till nope. the end of the day and now I'm thirsty and you, yeah. you down a glass of water because your body can only absorb, do you know this, Mike? Cert no. I'm gonna in a second. Okay, though. the body <laughs> yeah. can only absorb about four ounces of water every half hour. So really? that's yeah, it's the size of like a Dixie cup. Yeah. So more than that, at one in one drink, our body isn't not necessarily going to absorb You're just gonna it. Pee it out. Yeah. yeah. So think of it as you need to be sipping water all day long, like a good big sip every fifteen minutes. I did not know that because I, um, I do that. You know, I won't drink water for a few hours and I'll go and like down like a down one. thirty-two ounces, and it's like, oh, I'm fine for the rest of the day. Yeah. You know? No, you won't be as hydrated. Yeah. You'll just urinate it all. Huh. Speaking of, I'm going to drink my water. There you right go. Now. Yeah. Good one example. Of the, one of the reasons I tell people all day long to drink water is it reminds me to drink water. Yeah. And then um, caffeine potentially can dehydrate you. So I always say for every cup of coffee, have a cup of water. And then the other thing that can really mess you up is alcohol. Alcohol can really make you dehydrated. So if you're yeah. drinking alcohol, you got to stay high with water. That's why you feel so crappy the next day, oftentimes, if you're drinking alcohol, because you're, yeah. you're really dehydrated. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Mike, we're going to talk about sleepless nights, hair loss and cracked teeth. Oh, wow. I got all those things. <laughs> <laughs> I can hardly wait. <laughs> You're listening to Raw Talk about full potential living for the health of it. 
Your host is Dr. Jenny Brooke, vitality expert and wellness chiropractor at Spinal Corrective Center in Amherst, New Hampshire. If you're in the Southern New Hampshire area, you can schedule a health consultation and examination with Dr. Jenny. To schedule, call 673-5600. That's 673-5600. For more information about Spinal Corrective Center, go to www.spinalcorrectivecenter.com or call 673-5600. To find a chiropractor in your area, go to www.chiropractic.org slash doctorfinder. Now back to raw talk about full potential living for the health of it. So as promised, Mike, I thought we would talk about this article by khn.org, and it's titled, Sleepless Nights, Hair Loss, and Cracked Teeth, Pandemic Stress Takes Its Toll. Everybody is a tad stressed out this just year. Just a tad. Just, just a little bit. So into the article, it says, although people often underestimate the influence of the mind on the body, a growing catalog of research shows that high levels of stress over an extended time can drastically alter physical function and affect nearly every organ system. So right now, it says we're at least eight months into the pandemic alongside a divisive election cycle and racial unrest. Those effects are showing up in a variety of symptoms. And this doctor, she's a California-based psychiatrist, and she's co-author of a couple books. She says, Dr. Jennifer Love, the mental health component of COVID is starting to come like a tsunami. Because, and what they're saying is, um, I'll summarize it here, stress over a long period of time will really tax your adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands are what's responsible for that fight or flight. So basically, we're staying in fight or flight. We talked right. about this last this yep. episode. Um, and if we do that for a long period of time, if we're being chased by the tiger for eight months, eventually our body's going to be affected. We're so going to get tired. We're going to get tired. So yeah. nationwide, it said, surveys have found increasing rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts during the pandemic. But many medical experts said it's too soon to measure the related physical symptoms since they generally appear months after the stress begins. So they're basically saying there's still more to come. And they actually go on and talk about several different countries and what the study is showing. And it's it's all around the world. Of course. You know, it's yeah. not just us. Yeah, it's global. So they talk about stress-related hair loss. So they, they interviewed a whole bunch of dermatologists who said, said they're seeing a lot more stress-related hair loss. They interviewed fertility specialists who said they're seeing a lot more people with irregular menstrual cycles. They interviewed dentists who said there's been a rapid increase in patients with teeth grinding, teeth fractures, and TMJs. So this Dr. Love said, we as humans like to have the idea that we are in control of our minds and that stress isn't a big deal, but it's simply not true. Well, I don't have to worry about the hair part of it. Maybe it'll grow back. <laughs> it'll have the opposite effect on me. No. I just booked an uh, appointment for hair plugs, so. You did? No. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, crazy? Everyone's like, I wish this was a video yeah. cast. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> okay, so studies link chronic stress to heart disease, muscle tension. I mean, we see that all, all, all the time. day long. Mm -hmm. Gastrointestinal issues and even physical shrinking of the hippocampus, which is an area of the brain associated with memory and learning. So if you start to feel like you're not remembering things as well or you're not picking up things as easily, it's a sign of long-term stress. So as the immune system acts up, some people can even develop new allergic reactions. Really? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? But the good news is many of these symptoms are reversible. Well, that's good. So you can you can build this all back up. And speaking of plastic, <laughs> the this doctor, she's a professor of clinical neuropsychology at the University of Cambridge, Barbara Sahakian. She said, the brain is plastic, so we can 
we can to some extent modify it, but we don't know if there's a cliff beyond which we can't reverse a change. So the sooner you catch something, the better. So just like our last show, which Chill. talked about day-to-day yeah. steps on reducing stress. Easy, you know, it's easy to say, though. You know what I mean? It's, it is. Yeah. And I think that's where taking steps during this time to activate the tools you have. And, and to some extent, not just your day-to-day, like breathing, but you know, maybe it's time to figure out if you haven't been going to the gym... And you're yep. not, and you don't want to go back. Well, how are you going to get some exercise? Right. Mm-hmm. Or if you haven't been going to your therapist, maybe look at telehealth or maybe find new tools like meditation or practice mindfulness. You know, if you haven't had social connections, maybe it's time to figure out how to do it in a way that feels safe for you. Cause this is all the things that we need. If you haven't learned anything new, because lear- learning creates plasticity in sure. the brain and that's what keeps yeah. us Learn stimulated. Learn how to play the piano. Take, yeah. Do that during the winter. You know what I mean? Exactly. Something like that. It makes a difference. Yeah, of course. It really makes a difference. Well, it takes your mind off the issues Mm -hmm. at hand. So So our brains are changing. They just are. Stress will change the brain, but learning something new also will change the brain. So we can kind of decide how we're going to use this time and if we're going to somehow fuel the stress into something productive. But either way, like taking control of your own mindset and your own... I'm going to learn how to play the accordion this winter. (laughs) What what musical instruments do you play, Mike? Um, I play drums. I play bass. I play piano. You know, some better than others, but you know. You don't sing a whole lot. I don't sing. You like no. a little backup, no. but that's it. No, I got banned from that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that would send people over the cliff. That's not going to help them psychologically if they listen to me sing. That might be it. <laughs> Doctor Daniel, I know to keep your brain going, you like board games. Oh, I love board games. I can imagine that's quite a stress reducer. It is. It is. Yeah, I never thought of that, but it, it takes your mind off something. It kind of it works does. your brain. It does work your brain. And it also helps you connect with other people. That's without true. Without electronics. Yeah, it's fun. For the most part. Yeah, yeah. Because you actually sit there and talk to people. Yep. You know, if, mm-hmm. what is it? You know, I don't know what you play, like Trivial Pursuit or something like that. That's no, an I old pl- one. That's an old one. I play a lot of games that most people would never have heard of. Really? He's mm-hmm. an advanced board game specialist. Oh. That's, a, that's a good term for it. I like that. <laughs> His brother, though, makes... Um, wooden Catan. If you ever heard of Settlers Catan or Catan, his brother makes yeah. the wooden pieces. He has an engraving oh, cool. company. His, his brother and sister in law. Yep. And I just bought. I just bought a full Catan yeah. board, like all the pieces, and it's handmade wood carved. I mean, it's. I'm nice. so excited. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. It's really neat. Yeah. So getting excited about maybe something you normally wouldn't sure. do. Yeah. I mean, the kids and I, um, the, our whole family, we played um, Sharkopoly the other night it's like monopoly but about shark sharks <laughs> you know it's like one of those games someone gives you and you're like yeah i'll do that someday well it was it's someday. probably fun <laughs> we're having yeah. someday like yeah. we're yep. in someday so the things you would do someday and we had so much fun yeah, nice it was really good okay so um on the top of pandemics this is really interesting this came out of a, a site called sharp.com health news and the title is could a fever help the sickest covid19 patients <laughs> So this is one of those things that I feel like, why does it need to be researched anymore? Well, because as they say, we've long known that there are some benefits to fever, which is the body's natural response to an infectious disease. Mm -hmm. Right. But they also said it's terrifying for most people to have a fever. That's true. So that's lack of education, really, Mm -hmm. because the far majority of the time, the fever is your body like kicking butt to like yeah. get rid of an, an something infectious. So fever is so good. So this doctor, his doctor Wilms, David Wilms, 
he's um, director of critical care for Sharp Memorial Hospital. So this is a hospital. He said, in addition to slowing down a disease ability to replicate, our immune system just seems to work better when we have a fever. <laughs> right? So fever. That makes sense. <laughs> fever and immune system are synonymous. So I'm so glad that they're acknowledging and studying that. Because well, that's good. So the interesting point they make, so maybe there's some validity to this, is that fever is usually early in the illness. And by the time people come to the hospital, they no longer have a fever. So the takeaway to this is if you're thinking, I absolutely can't be sick, I don't want to be sick, and you all of a sudden have a fever, the best thing you can do is let your body have a fever. That would be the fastest way to stop being sick. Yeah. But instead, we're afraid to be sick and we mm-hmm. see the fever as the sickness. Mm-hmm. So we have to bring the fever down, down, down right. which is actually stopping our body's ability to heal. Yep. So I could understand that if people end up hospitalized, they likely got the fever, artificially brought it down. The bodies couldn't heal and because they weren't healthy enough to fight it off, which is going to happen. They're in the hospital. Yeah. So what they do to, to create a fever is they they insert a special instrument into a patient's esophagus that increases body temperature from the outside. Interesting. Yeah. So outside of the body, the device is connected to an external heat exchange unit that warms or cools water. The water travels in a tube to and from the esophagus via a closed loop system, allowing for a highly controlled transfer of heat. I'm just thankful it's the esophagus and nowhere else. They're inserting it. (laughs) That's... Yep. Well, and here's another interesting thing. Um, there has been studies to show that if you start to feel a little bit sick, if you induce high body temperature, you take a hot bath, you go exercise, which is a really good way to do it, or you get into a sauna, sauna. Yeah. you oftentimes can bring your body temperature up yep. and then you fight it off and you feel fine the next day. So this is basically taking somebody at a later stage and creating it. So the cool thing is it's way less invasive than a lot of other things. And it is trying to institute the body's natural healing. I mean, it's artificial, but it is. So mm-hmm. kind of an interesting thing. I like, yeah. I like hearing that they're acknowledging the body's ability to heal and how it tries to do that. Absolutely. Instead of fear, fear of a fever. Okay, so then another Mercola.com article. This one says, using NSAIDs in late pregnancy could damage fetal kidneys. So what that means. What's an NSAID? So an NSAID is an over-the-counter prescription pain medication. So it's aspirin, ibuprofen, naproxen. Yeah. Um, And the FDA, actually, this is a new FDA warning. So it will become on on the bottle. So it just came out. The FDA has issued a warning about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. That's where the NSAID comes from. Use during pregnancy, ruling that product labels must include warnings about risk of a rare but serious kidney complication in infants. So what happened was when women, taken by women after 20 weeks of pregnancy, these drugs potentially could cause this fetal kidney problem, resulting in low levels of amniotic fluid and pregnancy complications. So to me, that's enough that no mom should ever think of taking an NSAID. And they're saying after 20 weeks, I say the entire pregnancy personally. But So this is something new then, right? I mean, I've never heard that before. So they're saying if you took it after 30 weeks, it could hurt their heart. Now they're saying if you take it after 20, 20 weeks, it could hurt their kidney. I don't think we should wait 10 more years to say if you take it after 10 weeks, it could hurt their whatever, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. lungs. But it's not so, surprising, really. No, because you hear, too, about babies who have low amniotic fluid, which can really create a problem in birth. Um, that's what happened. That These babies with low amniotic fluid, they saw, oh, and by the way, they saw the levels improve if their mom stopped taking the NSAID. 
Well, so good. they're saying taking it once, maybe not. But if mom's like taking it on a regular mm-hmm, basis, right. if she stops. So say you're listening to this right now and you're 30 weeks pregnant. You're like, oh, no, I've been taking it, you know, a, an, an ibuprofen every morning. It's saying if you stop, the, the amniotic fluid levels can go back up. Yeah. And it takes three to six days in most women to, to reverse the potential complications if they halt the medication. So good to know. And yeah, I think it's know. a general rule of thumb. If you can rely on natural ways to deal mm-hmm. with any problems while pregnant, um, we don't want to wait for the research to tell us. Not worth it. Nope. So lastly, U.S. News and World Report has a recent article. This is so interesting to me. It says social media kid influencers are promoting junk foods. Do you know what a kid influencer is? Not specifically, no. Mike probably does. I don't, actually. Okay, so I didn't know this. My kids, I'm sure, would know this. But they reviewed the top 50 kid influencer videos on YouTube. And so what a kid influencer is, is a kid that makes videos, puts them on YouTube, and gets followers. Right. Mm -hmm. It's usually about products or something, right? Well, it says in a new study, researchers viewed the top 50 and found that 9 out of 10 featured unhealthy foods. And we're talking about like they're being paid to talk about, right, like like to right. have a bag of Cheetos or yeah. whatever it is. Or an energy drink right. or something like uh, that. Nearly one in three promoted a fast food chain. So it says right here, but what in the world is a kid influencer? Kid influencers are young online celebrities with large social media fan bases. They earn big profits from ads and endorsements in their video. So the five most watched influencers of the study had generated more than 48 billion views and 38.6 million subscribers through more than 10,000 YouTube videos posted through July of 2019. Their average age, seven years old. What? Average. (laughs) Yes. Now they get paid for that, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the most watched of all these influencers is a nine-year-old kid named Ryan KG, whose video channel called Ryan's World has nearly 27 million subscribers. <laughs> what? 27 individual subscribers. Published reports pegged his 2019 income at $26 million. What? How old is he? Nine? He is nine. So, but his family started making videos of his reactions to unboxing new toys when he was just three. So, some kid like was really cute and funny at how he reacted to unboxing a toy at three. The parents decided to put it online. I'm guessing, but I imagine it goes viral. So they're like, let's buy him more toys and let more video, and that led to basically a career for this kid. Fascinating. I think it's pretty cool. So what's the brave new world? (laughs) So this is where it gets kind of interesting. It said the article says they added that what they call pester power kids repeatedly asking for something generates about 190 billion dollars per year companies know that kids can wield influence over their parents so kids like watching videos of kids pestering their parents for something that they want is what i took from that fascinating (laughs) isn't it have have you seen the documentary the social dilemma no but that's on my list i'm waiting to watch it with my kids it's about that right there we are the product now the people not what they're selling it's the people online that are selling it you know it's it's you got to watch it it's it's kind of frightening in a way um but it's it's definitely a must see i think anyway well and and the whole point of this is that you know it's it's in the entire video and these 
kids who watch these videos, because mostly watched by other kids, right. they'll watch the same video over and over. You know how kids are. They'll yeah. literally watch the yep. same video over and over. So it says it's like TV commercials, but it's on steroids because they watch it on autoplay and the the pro, the product is in the entire video. Yep. It's not like right. it's just a quick 30 second commercial where you're trying to run upstairs and grab something. It's, it's the whole thing. So it says that you'll see the same type of programming over and over again. Instead of 10 minutes of ads through a 30 minute TV show, they can end up seeing the same product over and over again. Plus TV commercials are only 30 or 60 seconds at a time. Right. So this was these findings. This actually was published in the journal pediatrics. Like this is like, this is a thing. And it said, plus kids tend to watch videos again and again, reinforcing any message they contain. And there was only something like 9% of the time. Was it something healthy, like a fruit or a vegetable? Right. So the food is very specific junk food and Mm -hmm. fast food. (laughs) So both experts through this article that was published in pediatrics suggested that the U S federal trade commission should increase regulations around products promoted in kid influencer videos. Yeah, that ain't going to happen. And it it recommended that if your kids, you know, your kids watching these videos and they're starting to ask you for certain products. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and of course, once you watch this um, documentary, they know how to write algorithms. So any kid that looks at that, there's going to be a whole string of videos, something similar to those products that will pop up on their on their feed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fascinating. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right here, they know everything we look at. Everything. Food and beverage companies spend about $1.8 billion a year on youth-targeted marketing. Of course. Yeah. And I don't know if this probably wasn't happening as much when you, when your kids were young, Mike, because you're a little bit behind me. But it was yeah. starting when my kids were like a late elementary, early middle school. We would go into the grocery store and say you go down the aisle that has, say, macaroni and cheese. There's no longer just like one macaroni and cheese. There's literally five, six, eight different products um based on like cartoons or movies so there's the spider-man mac and cheese and there's the disney princess mac and cheese and it's specifically at eye level for a kid so a five-year-old six-year-old it's at their eye level so they're like looking at all of these characters and attaching that to the food and then of course they love spider-man they want the spider-man mac and cheese right it's crazy Yeah. yeah That's why I stopped taking my kids grocery shopping. That's a good idea. <laughs> In general. In general, it's a good idea. Uh, okay, so that was your news brief for the day. Um, Till next time, be well, everybody. You've been listening to Raw Talk about full potential living for the health of it. Your host was Dr. Jenny Brooke, vitality expert and wellness chiropractor at Spinal Corrective Center in Amherst, New Hampshire. If you live in the Southern New Hampshire area, schedule a health checkup with Dr. Jenny at 673-5600. That's 673-5600. For more information about Spinal Corrective Center, call 673-5600 or check out www.spinalcorrectivecenter.com. You can also find Dr. Jenny on Facebook at Spinal Corrective Center. Thank you for listening to Raw Talk about full potential living for the health of it.